Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. What makes Monty Python work? Like, why, 50 years later, are Monty Python movies and TV shows still funny? Well, for one thing, the jokes were basically never topical. Silly walks and fresh fruit weapons have a kind of timeless quality to them. Then there's the dynamics of the group. Everybody had their lane, something they were great at. Terry Gilliam and his amazing collage animation. Michael Palin was very smart, sweet, kind of goofy. Eric Idle had his amazing songs and dumb guys. And John Cleese had brilliant, perfect timing, like unbelievable timing. Here, take it from Eric Idle. And watching Cleese time a line, you go, oh, my God. You can wait forever. I mean, I think in the Holy Grail, I'm waiting for him. He says, she turned me into a newt. And I'm at the front of the screen and I'm breaking up. I have to bite onto whatever I'm holding. I got better, finally, <laughs> says after two minutes, you know. So <laughs> that's a learning. That's a lesson in timing right there. It's bullseye. Coming up, Eric Idle. He's got a new book out looking back on his Monty Python days, the comics and rock stars that he was friends with and worked with, and, of course, crucial insight into the creative process of Python. It's, uh, we wrote it when we were pissed. Uh, we, were, we were halfway up a mountain in, in Bavaria. He was dressed as Little Red Riding Hood in a dirndl and full skirt. <laughs> then Dev Hines. He's an acclaimed producer, singer, and songwriter. He records under the name Blood Orange. And even though he never really plays guitar on his albums, he will tell you he can shred. Um, I only play guitar on stage. I don't play guitar, like, at home or anything. And if you ever see me live, I do a crazy guitar solo, <laughs> like, in, in the set. And finally, I'll recommend a new book of photographs that captures the spirit of a city. All that is coming up on Bullseye. Let's go! It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week doesn't need much introduction, being basically an all-time top 10 comedy legend. Eric Idle is a founding member of Monty Python. He co-created and starred in their television show, along with hit movies like The Meaning of Life, The Holy Grail, and The Life of Brian. He also created The Ruddles, the Beatles parody band, and he wrote the smash hit Broadway musical Spamalot. These days, 50 years after Monty Python was founded, Idols entered a reflective moment in his career. He's written a new book about his life. It's Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, a sort of biography. He named it after the iconic song he wrote and sang in The Life of Brian. When you're chewing on life's gristle, that grumble, give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best. And always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life. If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten. And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing. Eric Idle, welcome to Bulls. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You recorded the vocals of that song under a blanket in a hotel room? I was just thinking of that. I, live in a hotel bedroom in Tunisia, <laughs> in a very sort of second-rate hotel, too, and in the sound recordist's room. Um, yeah, because I wanted to change the way I sang the lyric, because we, we were on location filming The Life of Brian, 40 years ago, actually, and... Uh, I just thought it should be the character I'm playing, Mr. Cheeky. It thought like this. And uh, the demo I'd done was really rather boring. Always look on the bright. You know, it's kind of a boring, boring, boring vocal. So I thought, oh, that's what I should do. So I took a bottle of Bucha, which is this rocket fuel, and drowned a bit of it. And then we just hit it live. And I'm, that's live from a hotel bedroom in Tunisia. That song, in, in a lot of ways, is sort of a framing device for, for the book. 
And I had never thought of it in terms of it being like a solution to the problem. The problem being, if you're going to make a comedy about Jesus, he's going to be crucified at the end. <laughs> well, yes, uh, but so are thousands of other people. You know, it's the Roman, it was the Roman method of execution. So you have to come up with some – if you know that you're filming – you know, obviously, Life of Brian is Jesus adjacent. Uh, but if you know you're going to end your film, it, you can't end it with a wedding like most comedies, right? Like no. it can't be a Midsummer Night's Dream or whatever. No, no. <laughs> so, well, I mean all of the characters were heading for – a lot of them were heading for execution. And that was a sort of problem we had to do. Oh, what the hell are we going to do? How are we going to end this damn thing? And we weren't very good at endings. Holy Grail stopped with the police coming in and arresting everybody, which my daughter says is the worst ending of a film anywhere. It is a ever. very bad ending. It's a very bad it's ending. It's maybe my favorite movie of all time. It's a terrible <laughs> ending. So um, we were trying to think of what to do. And I, I just said, well, we should end with a song. You know, it should be like a cheery uppy song, you know, uh, looking on the bright side. Because it's it's terribly ironic. You can't actually look on the bright side when you are being crucified. There's not a lot to look forward to. So it is a sort of dumb optimism in in the context of the movie. <laughs> but it seems to people have adopted it for reality. It's just got nice. Let's talk about beginnings for a second. I didn't know much about the circumstances of your early life. Can you tell me about how you came to ship off to boarding school full time? Um, well, I was, it was I was born in in, in World War Two, and uh, at the end of World War Two in 1945, my father was still in the RAF. He'd been since 1941, and they told everybody to hitchhike home for for the holidays. And he got a ride, and he was in a truck which swerved off the road, and the load crushed him, and he actually died in hospital on Christmas Eve, which is a kind of a poignant scene for anybody. Um, I was only two and a half, so it's that's something that I only experienced afterwards and through the absence of my mother's in extraordinary grief and reaction to that. I think she disappeared into a depression for a while. Um, and then, you know, she... She uh, she got better, <laughs> and uh, then I I think I went to school in the other side of the Mersey, opposite Liverpool, um, in Wallasey, and then it was too much. You know, I was about seven, and an unruly seven-year-old boy, if you're trying to keep a full-time job as a nurse, which he was, so the the REF very kindly <laughs> stuck me into a, a, a sort of semi-orphanage, um, which we had been an orphanage, and now... I went to school rather bizarrely with a lot of boys who none of whom had fathers. They'd so, all... like, literally, this was a school that had been an orphanage yes. weeks before you got there. Like, the big, the big changeover, they're like, well, we're going to send a bunch of kids who lost a parent right. in the war right. to this school, right. courtesy of the RAF, the Royal sure. Air Force. Sure, So they paid for my education, which is very nice of them. Um, But it was kind of, it's not a thing you notice. You don't go, by the way, do you have a dad? No. Do you have a dad? No. Do you have a dad? Don't stand up now. Um, You you only, it's only afterwards in hindsight, you realize, well, that's a kind of peculiar self-selecting group of people. How how odd must that have made us behave? We, We didn't have any idea what a father was or even discipline. So we were kind of a bit unruly and kind of sneaky and anti authoritarian. And I think that was very useful for Python. What kind of relationship did you have with your mom when you were a kid and teenager? Well, very intermittent because the the terms were 14 weeks. So you were gone. You know, that school was the overall life. And then there were moments of kind of, oh, we can go home now um, for for the holidays. You've got three weeks here, two weeks there, eight weeks in the summer. And that was kind of wonderful and luxurious. But then you're back to this thing, you know, where, you, you know... I, I, <laughs> it's all disciplined and very, you know, there were good things came of it. For example, I'd read everything. By the time I, I got into playing for university, I was way ahead of people who were having a decent life and going out <laughs> with teenage girls and enjoying the early 60s. I, we'd had nothing. We were just doing homework and prep, you know, all, all, all evening. So um, it helped me get onto the next stage, which was very useful. You were a Good student, though. I mean, despite all this unusual stuff. I think because at a certain stage of education, it's all down to what you do. So, like, we call it A-level, which is from 16 to 18 and 19. You do these advanced uh, exams, and that's all self-learning. So I did history and literature and geography, all of which I love doing. 
And so you escape by reading. And I think quite early on I escaped by reading. That's how you make your, your privacy, your privacy around yourself is by getting into books. And uh, there wasn't much television. So we, it wasn't like we could get into TV or, you know, we had little transistor radios. So we got into rock and roll listening to the radio stations from Luxembourg. Um, and th- those were our means of escape, really. When you got to college or university, did you look around and think, oh, I don't think any of these people grew up in a semi-orphanage? It's a sort of such a, a strange, different world. From Wolverhampton is a very bleak and, and gray and dark, or was in those days in the 50s and 60s, early 60s. But Cambridge is built in 1347. My college was built. It's like, well, look at this then. And uh, it's so beautiful. You you know, you look at King's College and you – it's sort of everywhere is beautiful. And um, then they treated you like intelligent adults. It wasn't any more of that, oh, shut up or go to bed or be quiet. Or they wanted to know what you thought and what you think and how you are. And that was really – that was nice and different, and my life changed completely because of it. When you got into Footlights, the legendary theater comedy troupe mm-hmm. at Cambridge, it must have been great to like play in a space where all what mattered was whether you were funny. <laughs> I, my entire life, from my second term onwards, became all about comedy. The very first, I auditioned and did this Pembroke Smoker, which is a comedy club thing. And the first performance, I did a John Cleese sketch and met John Cleese. That's in my second term at Cambridge. So this is like 1963, February. So I've known him that long. And then all these, I watched and I joined this club by auditioning. And I, you just learn by watching people be funny. That's how, the only way you can learn, by watching and doing. Do you remember a particular lesson that you learned when you were in school as a performer or as a writer? I think the most I learned was once I was in the Footlights Club and it was lunchtime and I picked up a sketch which John Cleese had written and I'm reading through this headmaster sketch and I'm not laughing, I'm not laughing, I'm not laughing. I put it down and said, well, good luck with that. That night he killed with it because, listen up, everybody, hello, sit down, shut up. I mean, his level of performance made it hilarious, uh, whereas the, the sketch itself wasn't particularly funny. You know, I mean, it, it, was, it was all about the performance. Did you figure out what you could do as a performer that was funny? Because obviously your, your gifts as a performer are so different from Cleese's. Yes, I think I learned to perform during during Python because we had to play all these different roles and we have different wigs and makeup. So you can hide behind a character and then explore being a bit more ambitious in your performing. And watching Cleese time a line, you go, oh, my God, you can wait forever. I mean, I think in the Holy Grail, I'm waiting for him. He says, she turned me into a newt and I'm at the front of the screen and I'm breaking up. I have to bite onto whatever I'm holding. I got better, finally, <laughs> says after two minutes, you know. So the, the, he, that, that's a learning. That's a lesson in timing right there. You know, what, how, how long can you wait for a laugh? And so, you know, I'm very fortunate to be working with Palin and with, with Cleese and Chapman and, and Joan. They're all very, very good performers. And you, you're learning and teaching at the same time. You're, we're all picking up from each other. Can I play a song that you wrote with John Cleese? Sure. It's called Eric the Half a Bee from Monty Python, and my guest is Eric Idle. Half a bee, philosophically, must ipso facto half not be. But half the bee has got to be a vis-a-vis its entity. Do you see? But can a bee be said to be or not to be an entire bee when half the bee is not a bee due to some ancient injury? Singing. A la dee dee, a one, two, three, Eric the half a bee, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, Eric the half a bee. Always been a favorite of mine. Too. Mine too. It's uh, it's uh, we wrote it when we were pissed. Uh, we were <laughs> we were halfway up a mountain in, in Bavaria. He was dressed as Little Red Riding Hood in a dirndl <laughs> and full skirt, uh, and I was playing his mother, dressed as his mother. <laughs> and we we had finished filming our scene, 
and we decided to have a little bottle of schnapps because we were cold. <laughs> and they went off to film the rest of the sketch. And John and I, I had my guitar there, and I just pulled it out, and we suddenly wrote a song, completely bizarrely. Um, and I, I love it. I must say, I do love it. And John sings beautifully. People say he has no voice. He's perfectly in pitch. He sings a, a fantastic voice. It's a very dumb song. <laughs> it's a very strange and odd and bizarre song. You go, and then, because you, you record these things, and some things are picked up and some things aren't. That got picked up. People go, oh, I love that song. You go, really? Okay, <laughs> fine. Well, good. <laughs> well, it's such a lovely, it's such a lovely combination of two very distinct sensibilities of yours and Cleese's, right? Like, it is your tendency to kind of bring brightness and geniality to weird things like a kind of like presentational musical quality you know yes, that is that always put through a weird lens you know what i mean like right. placed just slightly wrong right and cleases but cleases is so masterful about the comedy of like just barely staying in control um, and that whole song is just like these weird, like the, all those weird, complicated rhymes and like logical schemes. But I, I can't even imagine how we even got to writing a song about a bee, let alone half a bee, called Eric. You know, John always thought the word, the name Eric was very funny. I mean, in one show, I think he had Eric the fish, Eric the fruit. But he, he just thought he thought the word Eric. I mean, it's a hard K at the. It's a hard K sound at the end. That's like is that a what it comedy. Is, chicken? That's a comedy staple. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. anything that ends in a cuh. He, he wanted us to go on tour called The Two Erics. I said, John, just <laughs> stick with our names. They'll come to that. <laughs> the Two Erics, they will not come. <laughs> You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Eric Idle. It also seems like you were the one, having read several Python's memoirs and read a lot about Python, that granted Graham Chapman was in a league of his own when it came to carousing uh, as a you know a serious alcoholic and a gay man in swinging london uh he was living his own class yes yeah he was he was a top drawer carouser um but like it seems like you were the one who actually in most in maybe most enjoyed the part of your life which was like hey i guess we're like cool subversive famous people and i'm not asking you to be um immodest but like the the benefits of that stuff you're like yeah i'm gonna go whatever like hang out with models or something sure i mean um that's that's sort of true i think when you've been to boarding school all bets are off you know you certainly <laughs> owed a good time um and i i think about it recently i thought please acts like jupiter he, he attracts all of the incoming things, and you can quietly go on in your life not being bombarded by fame and things, because he was really famous when we started, so everybody knew him, and one can just quietly get on with your, your life, and then a lot of rock and roll people just wanted to meet us. They just flat out pursued us, uh, uh, because we were their generation. But we were doing comedy. They were doing rock, and they had been for many years. But we were the same age. And so they would just, you know, they pursued us. I mean, the rock people paid for the Holy Grail. Uh, George Harrison played entirely for the life of Brian. I mean, it, it was a sort of was ama amazingly give and take. It was lovely. It seems like in your book you are trying to balance the story of how awesome it was to like go to George Harrison's castle, <laughs> which I, sounds great. It sounds great. And um, it seems like you didn't figure out how badly you were failing your family uh, as a, a young man until you kind of had a, a second chance at it later in life. Oh, sure. I mean, I, I I think we were young. We were, you know, it was the 60s. We were wearing tight trousers. <laughs> we had uh, all these crazy clothes to dress into. And there were the, the, the females were liberated by the pill. And we were sort of on the edge of all that. And it was, it was kind of fun because we were chic. And when we did the, you know, when we did um, our big show in London, the boxes were filled by Pink Floyd and the Stones. And, you know, everybody came, you know, so to see us. Um... Because there weren't that many comedians. There were just us. You know, there weren't, there weren't other, lots of other groups of comedy. So, and we were the same generation. 
And I think that was a very interesting generation. It made its own world in photography, couture, uh, books, literature, poems. I mean, everything. They just did everything because there was nothing there. And it was like a London was filled with bomb sites. It was a real mess when I first got to London. It was horrible. It was bomb sites everywhere with grass growing and weeds and everything. So it was all being made up. And then we had uh, one, two, two television stations and then three. You know, so it was all, it's all coming into being. And you're kind of riding in this river of all of this, this kind of cultural mm-hmm. river. And at some point, it seems like you looked back and were like, oh, I have a wife and kid back there. Sure. No, no. I mean, we were spoiled. I mean, we were on a rock and roll tour, you know, Canada. And, uh, you know, you think, oh, this is great. This is great, you know. Um, But after a while, you go, wait a minute, that was very bad behavior. You know, you could. But, hey, that we all you can say is, look, you're 26. You're on the road. Um, Yes, you was. I am. Absolutely. And. what I like now is I, had to, I sent the book to my ex-wife and I said, look, I'm sorry about all this. She said, I wouldn't have done it any differently. And I thought that was the sweetest thing to say. My interview with Eric Idle continues after we return from a short break. Still to come, we'll talk about how he looks back on Monty Python's legacy today, 50 years after the group started. Then another brilliant Briton, Dev Hines of Blood Orange. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message comes from Simple Contacts, the fast and convenient way to refill your contact lens prescription. Simple Contacts is not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam, but it is an easy solution to renewing and reordering contacts. To save $20 on your lenses today, go to simplecontacts.com bullseye or enter the code bullseye at checkout. Featuring brands you love and the speedy service you need, Simple Contacts is vision care for the 21st century. More than 20 years. That's how long Olympic gymnastics doctor Larry Nassar abused the girls and women who came to see him for treatment. Believed, a new podcast from Michigan Radio and NPR, digs into how he got away with it for so long. Hi, everybody. My name is Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. And together we're the hosts of Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. What does that mean for you, the podcast consumer? Well, it means that you're going to get a lot of stories about how we used to do weird stuff to people in order to try to fix them. Do you know that we used to think diseases were caused by bad smells? And that we used to eat mummies for medicine? That's super funny. I told you what. Well, thanks, and we hope you'll kind of like our show, Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. It's available every Friday wherever fine podcasts are sold or at its beautiful, picturesque home at MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Eric Idle, is a founding member of Monty Python. He starred in movies like The Holy Grail and The Life of Brian and so many more. He's got a new book out. It's called Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, a sort of biography. Um, When you write a memoir, Mm. one of the things that you have to deal with is the important people in your life who you are – remembering after their passing. Was that a difficult part of writing the book? It was. It was the hardest part. I realized, I mean, I what I did is I set out to write the story and I didn't want to go to a publisher. I wanted to just write a book that I wanted to write, how I wanted to write it, and just let's see what it, what happens. Where does it go to? What subjects do I find? And then after a bit, I realized that I had been avoiding dealing with some people I knew who had recently passed. And I, in particular Robin, I hadn't faced the fact that I really didn't believe he was dead uh, totally. And I owed it to him to write about him because I'd known him since 1980 and we'd been very close um, to write something about him and to try and express what kind of an extraordinary person he was. And so that was sort of hard to do. 
but that was the, that's the discipline of when you come back to a thing, you try and put some shape into it and what it needs, what's it missing, what can you put into the cake, you know, that make it be- make it better as a book. When you did that, when you engaged with, I mean, Robin Williams is one of the people, George Harrison is one yeah. of the folks that you write about. Um, Graham Chapman, although Chapman has, you know, you've covered in many more Python-centric things than the book. Um, you know, how do you, how do you feel differently about their passing as a you know as a guy in his mid seventies, like as a person who has a lot to retrospect about? Well, you look around and suddenly all the people I found really funny and really great for going to dinner are gone, like Gary Shandling or Carrie Fisher, um, Mike Nichols. You know, they, they, you know, and that's you suddenly realize, oh, I get it. So uh, wait, so the death thing that that does apply then, okay? Um, and you know, I think the fact is that you just it behoves you to realize and put things into perspective, and then you know, I like to encourage younger people. Um, and just, you know, to, to write about people I wanted to write about. I always liked, um, what's that little straighty book, Eminent Victorians, and these are eminent Elizabethans. But uh, I, I, I like the idea of writing about characters of people who, whom you knew or have some insight into. I think that's, that's interesting for people, and it's also interesting for me to write about. It's the 50th anniversary of Python coming up. Hmm. You've done what you say will be your last shows. <laughs> um, and, you know, you just wrote your memoir, like you're in you're in looking back mode. Right. Do you still look forward to, do you still make the kinds of plans that you made 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago? No, I mainly want to sort of read books and, <laughs> and play guitar, you know. <laughs> but... Um, we can't do it again because sadly Terry Jones is not able to do it again. And then, so that's, there's very few of us left, you know, so able. And it wouldn't be the same. I think we sort of did a big show and a big farewell. We have a little, we may have some surprises up our sleeves, but um, it will be certainly not us particularly performing. It'll be encouraging other things to take place. I think that's the best I can express it. Um, you know, because. Fifty. It, it's not our anniversary. It's like a, it's somebody else's wedding anniversary. You know, it's it's a very strange one. But I thought I would write my book because I knew I'd be asked questions, and so I wanted to see what I could remember while I still could, hadn't forgotten. Do you think of it all differently now than you did twenty years ago, or even like I'm talking about after the movies were made and so on and so forth? But still, a long time ago, a very long time ago, and it, it just—it's amazing to me because it just seems to get bigger. I mean, it doesn't seem to pass away. It becomes more and bigger. And you, in the end, you just, you know, well, what can you do? <laughs> you embrace it, enjoy it, and be grateful for all those wonderful people that you met along the way and all the many laughs. We were doing comedy, so we had a lot of bloody laughs, and that's really great. Eric, I'm so grateful that you came here to be on Bullseye. It's a real honor to have you on the show. And thank you for that, and th- thanks for your amazing work that's meant so much to me and and so many people. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you for reading the book. (laughs) (laughs) I did. It's true. (laughs) Eric Idle, a real-life Monty Python member. His new book, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, is in bookstores now. You can go check it out. I I mean... (laughs) What can I recommend to you from Monty Python, the greatest comedy group the English language has ever known? Uh, But I will say one of my favorite little Eric Idle performances is in a sketch called The Piranha Brothers. I'm sure you can find it now that all of Python's on Netflix, and I'm sure you can find it on websites that play videos too. But uh, yeah, just Google The Piranha Brothers and you'll be glad you did. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Dev Hines, easily one of the most interesting musicians around today. Sometimes he's a producer. He's worked on hits for folks like Carly Rae Jepsen, ASAP Rocky, The Chemical Brothers, just to name a handful. He also produced the breakout Solange hit, Losing You.
Besides his production work, Dev has also been making music of his own for over a decade, first under the name Lightspeed Champion and then starting in 2011 as Blood Orange. His sound isn't easy to define. It changes from album to album, sometimes even from song to song. You'll hear a little bit of Prince, some Eno, maybe Sade. It's music made to evoke feelings, melancholy, love, nostalgia. It's beautiful music. Like, listen to this. It's a track from his new album, Negro Swan. The song is called Jewelry. Dev Hines, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So you're originally from a place called Essex. Um, can you can you tell me about that place? I, I've never been. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to be a representative for Essex, England. But um, um, I don't know. I guess like the short of it is that... Um, in many aspects, it's it's almost like the the New Jersey of in regards to New Jersey to New York, Essex to London. I guess in terms of just like places that are on the outskirts of major cities, and right, what that kind of breeds in culture and uh, yeah, within people. I mean, it's it's a, it's kind of a weird place. I mean, I mean, you know, actually, that metaphor is not even a metaphor because some years ago after the Jersey Shore was so popular they they made a UK one and it was called The Only Way is Essex so it it really is the you know the mirror I guess in its own unique English way did you like it when you were a kid? no I hated it (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, I, I, but that's more uh, from a uh, small town mentality when wanting to burst out, would uh, travel into the city every opportunity, every weekend and skate along the South Bank and St. Paul's in London. But uh, yeah, no, I never really, I never really liked it. <laughs> I can, I can see its charm. Now that I'm older. Did you go to school in your neighborhood or elsewhere? Yeah, it was in my neighborhood. Um, there was a... Well, it's actually funny because the reason I got into skating was because there was a f- couple of things mixed together. One was I had, I had really bad eyesight and I needed to take a bus to school. And I wasn't wearing my glasses a lot because I was getting bullied for wearing glasses. And then also I was just getting bullied so to such a crazy extent that I just didn't want to take the bus anymore. So I started uh, skating so I could skate to school. What kind of bullying w- was going on? Um, Being up, put in hospital, spat on, all that kind of stuff. That's awful. Yeah, I mean it sucked, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but you know it's uh, what it is, and I kind of um, have you know I work through it, especially within the last um, I guess four or so years. Well, I guess there wasn't really a point, but I I kind of look through it and at it, and I try and make some kind of a framework, I guess. I mentioned something to that effect. There's a song on the album called Dagnum Dream, and I kind of mention a moment like that that happened, where I had, like, quite long hair, and after maybe one of the worst times I got beaten up, I kind of, like cut my hair off and like shaved like lines in my eyebrow and like that and I had a teacher 
my like media teacher actually I think she was and she was kind of like the well to me anyway she was kind of like the cool one like because she like would go to Glastonbury and stuff <laughs> so I was you know she was like the young teacher and um and she saw me and she started crying and I've never forgot it um and that's I mentioned that in uh Dagenham Dream You lived in the United States like 10 years. Yeah. What do you think about when you think about England? Like, what are the things that you've maybe even surprised yourself reminiscing about? Well, my happiest memories that I look back on tend to be based on sports. <laughs> so um, I'll think about playing football, really. You were like a pretty serious football player or soccer player. Yeah, yeah. When you were a kid, right? Yeah. That was that was the number one thing for me. How much time did you plan spend playing? So, lunch times of school, uh, after school, sometimes before school with training, and then uh, depending on what teams I was on, there'd be matches on Saturdays and on Sundays once I joined uh, an additional team, and then there'd be trainings on those mornings also. So there's a fair amount of time. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'll say present tense too because I still believe it, but I'm a very good football player. <laughs> you know, there's only a couple things that I will ever talk uh, confidently <laughs> about myself in, you know, and, and football is one of those things. There's maybe only two, I'd, depending on the day, three <laughs> things, but usually there's only two things in the world that, I'll, that I'm actively be confident in <laughs> but one of them is football the second one is what words with friends <laughs> you know what i am good at that actually but no um <laughs> no no uh playing guitar <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> that's fair you're listening to bullseye i'm jesse thorne my guest is dev hines of the band blood orange why did you quit um it was extremely tiring I hated playing, like, training at, like, 6 a.m. on a Sunday, and it's, like, raining, and it's gray, and there's just mud everywhere. And and it's so competitive. And, you know, I mean, I, I am pretty c competitive, but not that much. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, I didn't care that much. And you really needed to care more than I did, you know? Like, I play now, and that's the level at which I care enough. Did you have a vision for your life that was something else, or were you just tired of running around in circles? I was just tired, yeah. That's really all it was. <laughs> I didn't have any idea, really, what I was doing. I mean, if someone had to ask me at that point in my life, I would probably say, like, writing in some regards. Like, that seemed to be what I've thought, maybe th where I've thought things were going to go. So what changed? Because you've had like three or four different music careers at this point. I guess it was this thing where music was always kind of in the roots of me, but so much so that I didn't actually take it that seriously. Because, you know, through, through, throughout all of those things, I was making records in my bedroom and playing in bands and playing in orchestra and doing like recitals but it was always like the the fun thing I was doing to kind of keep myself going I wasn't ever I wasn't ever chasing anything because what made me happy was just the act of doing it like I always say like I never I never sang in front of a mirror in my bedroom like it wasn't what I did was like tape things off the radio and then like try and like recreate them. I mean, it seems to me like that might be part of why you're 
such an accomplished producer. I mean, like a lot of thank you. <laughs> a, a lot of musicians are also like really passionate fans, and uh, I, I hate the word, but I'm going to use it: curators. Um, uh, apologies, <laughs> but like uh, you know, th- that's true of a lot uh, a lot of musicians. But like, uh, so much of your music is about. It feels like it is about finding new ways to bend aesthetics. Mm. Yeah. More than it is necessarily about like, you know, rocking a crowd or right. You know, whatever the other, whatever <laughs> the other values of pop music are, many of which are totally great. Yeah, totally. I mean, maybe this. Okay, so. Maybe this will kind of explain it a bit more, but like how I um like how I make Blood Orange albums, especially the I'd say, yeah, Keep It Like Freetown and this last one. The general trail of how they're made, I think, kind of sums it all up. Because it tends to be and this varies, of course, like it's not exact like this, but title first. Like I had the title Negro Swan around the time Freetown Sound was released, I knew I wanted to do a project called Negro Swan. And from there, it was like thinking of uh, uh, what does that mean and imagery and um, just trying to create like a, almost like a template or like a mood board of like feelings and imagery. Like an actual binder, right? Like a physical, yeah, yeah, had, actual had, thing, had, not metaphorically. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> this is yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is a literal book of images and moods. And from there, once I'm kind of putting that together, I have these ideas of uh, the music kind of attaches itself to the imagery of me. So I have an idea of these different things and feelings. And I tend to make actually these like playlists and mixtapes for myself of other people's music that is feeding into it. But then within that, I've I find I see the things that I'm missing or the things that I want to feel and and meld together. So that's kind of forming, but it, it like the music not, doesn't exist, you know, <laughs> like it's in right. my head, this kind of thing. And then I'm writing words down. So I start writing a lot of words and then I kind of like, kind of work it out. Like I'll have an idea of what I think a track listing would be. So I knew how I wanted to open the record I knew the change I wanted it to go through in the middle. And I kind of knew how I wanted to end it. And then I kind of like fit it in and I make that mood, you know. (laughs) It's kind of a weird way. And so all the tracks tend to actually finish at the same time in the mixing process. Usually when I'm mixing a record or just before that, the tracks start to finish because it's hard for me to finish track two if I know I haven't finished track three so it's really rare that like I could probably play a track to someone but I'll feel weird about it because I know that it needs to it it it's all going to affect everything else so they they tend to hit the finish line at the same time we'll wrap up my conversation with Dev Hines after a break still to come what's it like when Diddy has your phone number and returns your calls Dev Hines has the answer It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. based on hiring sites with over 1,000 reviews on Trustpilot. And right now, Listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. Hey, this is Stretch Armstrong. And this is Bobito Garcia, the hosts of What's Good. We're back with a brand new season. We've got Erica Badu, Lenny Kravitz, Black Thought, and more. You'll hear B-side stories from A-list guests. Subscribe now. The secret is out. I. Open Mike Eagle officially had a wrestling match. And on the next Tyson fights, I'm talking all about it. From the rap battles that got it started. Open Mike, you ain't ready. Oh, really? You heard like oh, really? some forget it. <laughs> 
and to how I hurt myself in ways I didn't know I could. That day and the day before, I got so many texts from people who really care about me who were like, please don't break your neck. <laughs> the only place you can get the full story is on the newest episode of Tights and Fights. Find it on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Dev Hines, is a singer, producer, and multi-instrumentalist. He's worked with Solange, ASAP Rocky, Kylie Minogue, and many more. He records his own records under the name Blood Orange. His new album, Negro Swan, is out now. When you were a teenager and you were playing in bands, what kind of bands were you playing in? Mainly metal bands. Mainly metal. I think the first promo picture of you that I saw, you were wearing a Megadeth t-shirt. Probably. I learned all my... The artists that I essentially learned guitar and bass from are Megadeth, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, and Heart. Do you have to, like, resist playing sweet riffs whenever you have a guitar in your hand? Um, I only play guitar on stage. I don't play guitar, like, at home or anything. And if you ever see me live, I do a crazy guitar solo, <laughs> like, in, in the set. You know, there's actually a, a, a from a recent, the last Pitchfork Fest, did a song called Nappy Wonder, and I did a, I do a crazy guitar solo in that. Even though it's not even me on the record. I didn't even play guitar on that record. When you were a teenager playing in metal bands, did you do that thing that teenagers who play in metal bands do, which is, like, sit in your room and bang out riffs faster and faster until you can totally shred like Dave Mustaine? Totally. Although I was trying to shred, like... Um, I was trying to shred, like, my Friedman, Billy Corgan... And the Heart Sisters. That's who I was trying to play guitar like. Did you think that was going to be your life at some point? I mean, when did you think I will become a, a musician? Especially as a guy who didn't sing in front of a mirror, as you said. Um, probably like two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't know. Yeah, it really... Um, I don't. I, I never really thought it was going to go down. It kind of just happened. What is it like for you to write on and produce pop records? Um, you've worked with um, Britney Spears, and she didn't take. She didn't. She didn't take my record. <laughs> um, uh, Car Carly Rae Jepsen. That that came out. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a beautiful song. In fact, why don't oh thank thank you? Why don't we hear the song that you co-wrote and produced? I, I believe for Carly Rae Jepsen called "All That." I haven't heard that in a long time. <laughs> it's only a few years old. But it's <laughs> well, I've, I, I, the thing is, I've had the original version of that song I had for so long. Like, crazy. Like, first Blood Orange album period, 2009-2010. So what's it like when you are making one of those records and and how is it different from when you're making your own records are you usually going in with demos or um no it, it varies it's all it's kind of an my thing with collaborating with people is i'll do it in any way they want because i'm giving myself as a service to them and so if they want me to just sit and come up with melodies while there's a producer i'll do that if they want me to produce track i'll do that you know it's whatever if they want to write in the room together just me and them create something then i'll do that i'm very like if i've given myself to that person and in that environment then i'm 
you know, kind of theirs and just will try and be respectful and make the best thing, you know. So it's a completely different mindset to me just like walking around filling ideas in a book. It's like a different goal. Yeah, different goalposts, you know. You have Diddy on this new record. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who thinks that Diddy may have magic powers. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> uh, my friend, comedian Chris Gethard, has ha- had Diddy on his show a few times, uh, both his, his live show and his television show. And at one point, uh, Diddy's assistant told him that he, he or she believed that Diddy had magic powers. And then Diddy did something magical. Um and it really blew Chris's mind. <laughs> wow! But like, I think of all the people in the uh, of all the people in the contemporary music industry, uh, maybe the one who seems the least like a real human being to me is Diddy. Uh, like he seems like some like a mythical like a story about a record producer. <laughs> right. So, how did you get Diddy on your record? Like, did you like? meet him at the grocery store or like get his number um, from somebody did you imagine that he would did you have like diddy part and you're like i gotta get diddy for this yeah i did a fake diddy impression on the song and then i texted it to him and then he sent his vocals back the next day <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how it happened <laughs> um yeah <laughs> that's really it uh I like the part on the song Bring Hope When You Come Around. Yeah, like I was making a track with Taishi Val and I started doing that because in my mind I was picturing this like Maya type track and I was like, let me send it and see if he's down and yeah, he he was and the next day it existed. Yeah, bring hope when you come around Yeah, I still smile when you come around Yeah, bring hope when you it seems like he does 7,000 things a day and it j- maybe just appeared while he was near a microphone or something. Well, he recorded it at his, play- at his house in LA. But yeah, I mean, you know what though? Like, this is what I'll say about him is that he does a million things a day, but I think the reason why he's successful and he's so good at them is that he follows them through. For example, I remember once I called him and he uh, didn't pick up. And I was like, okay, obviously there's other things he's doing. <laughs> so that's okay. Um, then every, like a day passed or whatever, but then every day for like the next maybe five days, I like woke up in the morning with like four missed calls from him. <laughs> because he was calling back the missed call. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I think, and that's, that's him. Like, he really cares about what he's doing and he does it and he sees it through. Well, Dev, I've taken uh, more than the agreed upon amount of your time. So thank you so much for, <laughs> thank you so much for being on Bullseye. It was, it was really nice to get to talk to you and thanks for your, for your beautiful music. Yo, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Dev Hines. His new album, Negro Swan, is a gorgeous record, one of my favorites from this year. Let's take a listen to one more track from it. This one's called Charcoal Baby. Every week on Bullseye, we like to leave you with a culture tip from me. It's called The Outshot. So the photographer, Janet Delaney, has a new book of pictures called Public Matters. She shot them in the Mission District in San Francisco in the 80s. Delaney moved to the Mission at the start of that decade, looking for good weather and cheap rent, like the Central American refugees who filled it back then, and also like my parents. 
I was born at General Hospital in the Mission, 23rd and Petrero, in 1981. Delaney writes in the book that to live comfortably in a city is to feel at home with strangers. You can feel that in the pictures. On weekends, she'd head out in public with her camera. Block parties, parades, marches, carnival, Martin Luther King Day, or just up and down 24th Street or Mission Street, where the sidewalks were humming with folks who'd just gotten there from, from wherever else. Salvador and Nicaragua fleeing war, Mexico fleeing poverty, or just somewhere else in the United States fleeing their hometowns. And Mission natives, too, black, Irish, Chicano, and me, in a bouncy, big-wheeled stroller with my mom and her big old Samoya dog, Sugar Bear. People say that cities are places of alienation, but I never felt that way as a kid. You can see community in the eyes of the folks in these pictures. Some are united by purpose, by a quest for justice. Some are united in celebration, some in friendship. Some don't know each other exactly, but they know that being together is being at home. Kids and construction workers look like heroes in these pictures. Guys on the block show off their muscles and their ghetto blasters and their softball uniforms and their beers. People make out and wait for the bathroom and carry protest banners. As I turn the pages of the book, I think of Father Jack Isaacs, a priest at St. Peter's on 24th, who fought for his immigrant congregants and visited their kids in lockup. I think of the punk rock guy at the newsstand who checked in with me on my way home from school every day. The folks at La Raza Graphics. The guy from Adobe Books. The couple who owned K&D Market. Al from Al's Comics. The waitresses at Maria's Cafe, which my parents always called Dollar Breck because they had a really good breakfast special. Maybe even more than all of them, I think of the folks that I didn't know but I did know. My home was the people in the neighborhood around me. And yeah, it was rough and scary sometimes, but we were all in it together. Delaney's photographs are of people and of the radical idea that we all live together. Cities aren't for hiding. Cities are for showing out, for connecting, and being bigger and stronger when we stand side by side. Of course, there's melancholy, too. My dad got booted and moved out to the edge of town. My best friend Petey just moved to New Mexico. He just couldn't swing it anymore. Delaney is in the East Bay now. La Victoria Bakery just lost its lease, so I don't know where people are going to get their pan dulces next year. General Hospital is called Zuckerberg General Hospital now. Bought an eight-figure house and then spent a bunch of money putting in a turntable for his cars. Neighborhoods change, and the folks with money aren't all that interested in who they step on or how folks were before they got there. These people aren't exactly malicious. It just doesn't occur to them to care about that stuff, except for burritos and dive bars, I guess. Some people are still there. My mom's hanging in almost 40 years on. She's a senior now, so she's not going anywhere unless she has to. But it's hard to get a quorum together these days. So many folks are priced out and pushed out, and so few are left who want to make the streets a home. Delaney says her photographs are a precious family album, a way to remember what went, but also a tribute to those who stayed, those who fight on. And also, I think, a tribute to all of us who stepped down the sidewalk with a ghetto blaster, playing our roles in the drama of public life. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters in the American Cement Building, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Someone in the park has been playing a big horn. We're not sure what it is. We have confirmed it is not a Vuvuzela. It might be a shofar. Uh, It's not High Holidays, though, so that seems unlikely. So if you know what big horn is being played in MacArthur Park, let us know. The question is really bothering us. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is the able Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows at Max Fun are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. 
Our interstitial music was provided to us by DJ W, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Thanks to Dan for sharing it with us. Our thanks also to the band The Go Team for our theme song. It is called Huddle Formation. They and their label Memphis Industries provided it to us. We're always grateful. And if you'd like to hear any of our past shows, there are hundreds on our website at MaximumFun.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Hey, I just found out that Janet Delaney will have a show of the photographs from her book, Public Matters. It is at the Eukinom, E-U-Q-I-N-O-M, gallery on Alabama Street in San Francisco, and it runs from November 1st to December 22nd. And I guess that's about it. Just remember... All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.